Welcome everyone to KCADV's certification series. You're listening to Module 1, History of the Domestic Violence Movement. Welcome everyone to KCADV certification series. This is module one, history of the domestic violence movement in Kentucky. And we're going to steep back a little bit and talk um, a little historical perspective too. I'm really excited to be here today with Darlene Thomas, who's the executive director of Greenhouse 17, and Ann Perkins, who's the executive director of Safe Harbor in Ashland. And so this is sort of a monumental day. And I know we want to talk about this podcast that it can kind of live and breathe beyond on today, but we did just elect our first woman and woman of color as vice president of the United States. It also is the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. And so I just think that those are two critical pieces that we need to talk about and just sort of frame this rest of this conversation because our history is important as we have new advocates that are joining our sisterhood and our member programs across the state. We really want to make sure that they understand all the work that has been done before them and that they continue to lead from that position. So I'm sort of tossing that back over to you. But first, I guess, welcome. Hello, both of you. We're glad to be here. Thank you. Hi, yes. Darlene. Hi. Hello. I see you lots. Hello. I know. Hi. Hi. I love this crew. Yeah. 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 So, you know, Anne and I are here because we are the history. <laughs> <laughs> we created here. history. Yeah. It's not that we know anything. We just kind of no. lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've just lived it. Let's yeah. Just check it. Well, that was sort of the exciting piece as we were getting ready before the podcast started and we were sort of writing notes. I think it would really be much more interesting for folks that are listening in just to kind of eavesdrop a bit on a conversation between the two of you because you often were in the room when things were happening or you were talking to people who were in the room. I don't mean to age or date you all, but you have some years in the work both over 20, 30 plus years and in a previous position with the YWCA. We were talking about the importance of YWCAs and women's rights and, and the movement of voting rights and, and even like childcare. So all issues that sort of pertain to women. So why, I guess, just to kind of begin the conversation with the two of you, why is the history so important for our new young advocates to kind of grasp a hold of? Well, from my perspective, I see as looking at where we were and seeing where we are and then figuring out where do we want to be. And I think you can do that through that historical perspective, understanding really, in my opinion, a relatively short time that we have made such strides for, especially for women and children in this, in the United States and even in our state. So, you know, I just visited my aunt who turned 101 years old in October, and she has talked about how she's been involved. She actually worked for the Board of Elections in Ohio for probably 30 some years. So from her perspective of where women's vote was and our rights, you know, was really fascinating for me to hear in her words from the last hundred years on how, you know, women have evolved. So I just think that we uh, need to remember, like I said, where we come from, what our history is and uh, where we are right now and and try to, make you know, make a plan on where do we want to be in the next 20 to 50 years. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, you don't know where you're going until you know where you came from a little bit. Or you can be taken off track pretty quickly if you don't stay solid footing or keep a solid footing in the movement and what that means. But to understand that knows too, I, you know, nobody gets anywhere 
alone. And so, you know, myself have aren't standing on the shoulders of tremendous advocates who came before us, you know, and, and did it. So we, we have to honor the work and who's done it. And then we can figure out how we fit in it and where we go forward. I know I had sort of the pleasure, Darlene, of actually being with you when we went to a women's march in Washington about four years ago. And I had been to another women's march back in probably the early 90s. And both times I really wasn't in a position to hear the speakers. There was so many people there. I couldn't get up close to the stage. And after sort of getting through the initial disappointment of that, looking around and seeing the sea of people of their different stories of what brought them to that place at that moment at that time. I remember very clearly meeting a a gentleman whose wife was not feeling well and he felt the need to be there to represent her. In a march that I went to in the 90s, there was a woman who was wearing the suffragette boots that she wore in the Women's Right to Vote back in the early 1900s, you know, the 1920s. And you just sort of became, you know, just, I don't know, awe-stricken. You know, you were just sort of aghast at seeing these, well, aghast is a negative word, and, you know, just in awe of the power of so many people and people that just were regular folks, right? They were coming to work, they were doing their thing, but they just were showing up constantly for moving the needle just a little bit further for women's rights. And so, I don't know. I think what that did for me, it's almost hard to put it in words. It was that powerful um, to be a part of that group. And you saw these older women going, why am I still doing this? Like I just did this 40 years ago. <laughs> Here we are again. So you you honor them because then you got to see historically that there were people before you that were doing it. And then to be a part of this movement. And it was about equal rights and it was about justice issues and it was about human justice, much beyond not even just women's rights right? It was all inclusive. And that's when I first, in all these years doing this work and so celebrating women, but it's the first time. And there was tons of wonderful men as part of this movement. But I thought it really was about women going to change this world. It really will be the women and the people who will follow. And that's just how I felt going to that. Like I just didn't realize my own power as a woman until I saw all of us together with these incredible men right alongside of us. So I don't know. It it was an amazing experience. I don't know if I'll ever feel that again. Well, I grew up in the 60s and 70s as far as maturing and being in college and, you know, first getting married, all that kind of thing. It didn't dawn on me at the time when I was that young that women still had so far to go. You know, I couldn't get a credit card when I was in high school or college. Uh, They didn't, you know, they didn't let women get. That still is kind of mind boggling that I'm old enough to know that I grew up in an era where women Women, you know, really couldn't really own property. They weren't the CEOs of the company. They were, you know, they had their place. I can't tell you how many meetings I went to when I took over the YWCA and I went out into the community and uh, talking to, you know, business people about supporting, you know, the Y and that kind of thing. And and I actually at the time had men who looked at me and said, like, why are you doing this? You know, why aren't you home? You've got a you've got a baby. You've got a newborn baby at home. Why aren't you at home taking care of your newborn baby? Why are you doing this? You know, why are you here? And I was so taken back by even having that question because I was there. It was my first big job. You know, I'd never been a a CEO before. I was in my 30s and I just thought, man, oh man, somebody's asking me what I'm doing here and why I'm I'm not home changing diapers. You know, I, I was 
dumbfounded. But so, yes, we have come a long way. And it makes me feel old a lot of times saying, well, back in the day, you know, but it, you know, it's, it's in my lifetime, you know, and I don't feel as a, as a woman, I have no different feelings today than I did when I was 30 years old. Am I older, creakier and all that? Yes, I am. But do I still have that inner passion to, you know, move us forward and bring us, you know, into the 21st century? I mean, I said this on a uh, Facebook post last night. People were talking about the glass ceiling and all that. And I think uh, Mark Murphy had a really uh, neat cartoon, if you've ever followed Mark Murphy. Uh, he's a Courier Journal cartoonist in, in Louisville, and he's a friend of mine. He grew up with me, actually. His parents and my parents were best friends. But I said, you know, well, we've been in this position for thousands and thousands of years. It's just taken us a while for the majority to acknowledge us. You know, it's been that long. You know, w- we've always been on this planet. You know, we've, we've always been on. We've always been here. But it's just taken us till, you know, 2020 for the majority of people in the United States to give a hoot and say, oh, yeah, you deserve to be a vice president of the United States and a woman of color. And, you know, it, it is still, like I said, mind boggling to me that we're in this position today, thousands of years later of being on this planet. It reminds so. me a little bit of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We lost her this year just yeah. recently, actually, too. But she said that about her dissents. She said one of her dissents were almost as important as the other because she hoped at some point history would catch up. So she was always really clear to write her reasoning behind dissent because she would hope in 10, 20, 30 years that history and our movement, our progress would would reach and she would have some lasting you know, guidance, I think, for folks when they when they finally got to the point that she was at ahead of the game, you know. So it's, you know, a a call a little bit to advocates that are listening right now, you know, do know that there are women that are all around you, your mothers, your aunts, your sisters, your neighbors, the women that we work with, like we're collectors of stories in our advocacy role. It's what we do. But look at women in their whole and in their entirety and take a little time, you know, go back and call, you know, your mom and talk about were you ever denied getting a credit card? Were you ever, you know, what was what was that like back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know? begin to have that conversation. It's always weird to me because I could be a parent to most of the kids now, you know, where I, I don't think of that. But, you know, begin to start collecting how small acts can really do sort of amazing things. And then on another shift, there's some really amazing women that I know the two of you really look towards when you're doing intimate partner violence work. And so I thought it would be as we're encouraging folks to talk to the daily folks in our lives, who are some of those other folks that you would recommend that advocates read? about, listen to, check out, because they are sort of the mothers of this work that we've been we've been doing. Darlene, I'm going to look at you because I know who you're going to say. I'm, there might be it. others, but I know who you're going to say. Well, actually, there's been a tremendous amount of women and men who brought a lot to this work and will continue to hopefully along the in this journey because it truly is a journey. But for me, it's, you know, it's got to be Ellen Pence. <laughs> And Ellen Pence was one of the first, probably why we even have Power and Control Wheel, was Ellen Pence and her group at one point in time. She then moved on and helped do community, you know, assessments and figuring out how to create systems change in organizations for not just organizationally, but also throughout an entire community. So she did that for many years. She also was one of the first to do batter's treatment intervention and no matter how we feel about that per se, it has been critical work for survivors 
at least to, to look if there's a possibility for batter's intervention to begin to work, have some success. Because until battering stops, you know, you know, until predominantly males change that behavior, then we don't really end intimate partner violence. So the thought that she was willing to go and look in that direction when not a lot of people were wanting that at the time just meant she was a leader. She was just brilliant. She just she could see 20 years ahead of what was coming. She really should be honored. She's kind of noted as the woman, but there's been a lot of women along the way. I think one person that comes to mind, just state of Kentucky, and it's our own Sherry Kearns. I mean, when she started her position here as the first director for our coalition, you know, I remember going to visit her when I was the director of the YWCA, Judge Peggy Patterson, who is actually the first woman federal judge in the state of Kentucky, took me to Sherry's office, which was in a, a garage apartment in an alley in downtown Lu- or, uh, Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. And Peggy said, she said, I want you to meet Sherry Kearns and we're going to go, I'm going to take you to Frankfurt and we're going to lobby on the protective orders, you know, in the state. And I went, okay. I mean, like I said, I was young. It was my first job. She was a friend of mine, but she was on the board at the YWC or at the YWCA when I, you know, went on that board and became the director. So she actually is who brought me to Frankfurt pretty much my first time and met Sherry Kearns. I have to say, from even a historical perspective, I hate to say it's in my lifetime, but it's in our lifetime that Sherry's just retired from this position after what 37 years or 35 yeah as leading this cola and so she took us really from ground zero as a state and brought us forward just through i think a lot of she was just a tenacious uh, i don't take no for an answer kind of personality which you know really let us down a pretty strong path, I think, as far as the state of Kentucky is concerned, as being a forefront agency for change for domestic violence and sexual assault in the United States. I think a lot of things kind of came together. And, you know, once the first shelter was open, which was 1977 in Louisville, under the Y, because most all shelters and rape crisis programs and children's centers and things like that were pretty much why centered or that's who was willing to take a risk and explore what needed to be done. We didn't know how to run shelters in 1977. Louisville Shelter came about four years after the first shelter in the country. So it was a new movement. But once Louisville opened theirs and then Lexington was about 18 months behind Louisville and those two, um, there began to be, you know, collaborative efforts to start because what happened in historically is before that we knew there was a problem, but we did not have a forum to hear the voices of survivors per se. And then you start to open shelters and here you are with 20 or 30 survivors and they're telling you the gaps, what's missing, what, why they can't leave, why they can't, why they need to go back home because they're, you know, you're not going to get custody or you're not going to get child support or you're not going to have financial means or you're, you know, not going to be safe because the police are still telling people to, you know, cool off, take a walk, you know, around the block and, and, you know, quit calling the police or we'll take you both to jail kind of stuff. Right. And so we began to see those early advocates, the the Pam Johnsons of the world, who I have to yeah. mention, who is uh, an incredible and still is an incredible person, but was incredible in Louisville and was the first advocate hired for the Center for Women and Families. 
And they didn't even know how to answer a phone. They were terrified of a phone. <laughs> but I find that funny because we're still afraid of the phone. We like are. new advocates yes. are still afraid of that phone of what's going to be on the other end. And am I going to be enough as an advocate? And it was people like Pam and other, you know, women who sat there that took that risk to answer those phones and hear those stories. And then we started to see what needed to change. And then you have people, you got, you had to garner, you know, state leaders where we have Marshall Long at that time, who was incredible, Gerda Bindel, who helped look at legislation and protective orders and things like that. And then Sherry Kearns comes along and that's because really the two or three, four or five programs in the beginning, wanted to make sure that we had a program in every ad district. And that took, you know, about six, seven, eight years to occur. And then we needed the leader. And then they all came together and created it and made it happen. And it was really kind of un- out, I mean, of, it was out un- of nothing. It was out really. of nothing. Out of nothing. And most shelters, yeah. you know, most states aren't designed like Kentucky, right? Yeah. Like most states just have shelters in metropolitan areas, the big cities or the larger cities where, you know, in Kentucky, we make sure that everybody has access. It'd be great if we could have one in every county. People always want one in their county, but they're expensive. Right. We don't need them in every county. But we do need to have rural women have access. Well, the beauty, I think, of Kentucky is that we have that single focus coalition that made an effort to strategize how we can provide equitable services across the state, which they chose the avenue of you know, utilizing the ad districts. So that was their methodology for making sure that I think that we had equal access across the state by using the ad districts as the way to do it. And the only the only thing you have, I think that's even, you know, that's worrisome about that is because you have so many pockets of rural isolated parts that are really not desperately far away sometimes even from your two urban cities, which is Lexington and Louisville. So that, to me, is, I think, the beauty of how Kentucky foresaw the way of being kind of, like I said, equitable in services across the state is using that format that they chose that was really pretty brilliant, in my opinion, because most other states don't have that kind of methodology going on. They're kind of a hit and miss, you know, a shelter started here and a shelter started there, whereas Kentucky was very, I think, concerted how we did it. Well, I think what happened, you know, Kentucky created, (coughs) back in those days too, they were deinstitutionalizing mental health hospitals, right? And so Kentucky created mental health, community mental health model to make sure that they had access to services. So they kind of duplicated that for rape crisis and domestic violence when that movement went forward, which was quite brilliant and worked really well, I think, for survivors. Uh, And there's very few states like us and those that are is because they emulated us. Kentucky, I think, too, led the nation for many, many years. Like It was an exciting time when I came into this work in the late 80s. It was incredible, the movement that was taking place. You know, shortly after we were working, it took us forever, of course, to get marital rape laws passed in the state. It was like eight years of a battle. But then we faced that again later. We don't give up easily around here. We just keep going back till we get our way. But there was movement. We had national movement. You had VAWA going on. You know, Clinton had taken place and 
President-elect Biden was really instrumental in helping do VAWA. Whether you agree or disagree always with VAWA, because I think most good things kind of have a double-edged sword. I mean, you look at history, the good things that come, there's also a, a negative. There can be a negative to them as well. But it was an exciting time. Things were changing and moving, and we expanded protective orders. And, you know, we were looking at child support, visitation, and all that was finally accepted in protective orders. And that's really what survivors needed to be able to f- begin to free themselves of the violence that they were trapped in were those next steps. And and we just had a lot of footing nationally and here. And then, you know, after the 90s, we kind of were told, you remember the saying? I remember standing down there in Frankfurt and one of the legislators said, you've women got enough. Don't come back here again. You're not getting any more. And we were all just like, what? Way behind. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. We just got enough. But in it, they were serious. It was a lot of years before we, then we spent the next 10 years just battling bad legislation, like trying to undo the harm that legislation was going to do to our population and minorities and, you know, children custody, all kinds of stuff. And then we're kind of on an upward track again, I think, a little bit. We were also being accused of dismantling the family, that we were the vehicle to tear families apart by allowing women to leave a bad situation, you know, to be seen as somebody that was tearing down the family, that is also kind of a mind-boggling idea that here we were trying to preserve the family, but a whole section of the community saw us as being the, you know, the perpetrator of, you know, taking, you know, destroying the family, you know, so that I think was a big part of what we fought against, especially when we were getting started in the early ages, as far as the 80s and the 90s, is trying to debunk the issue that we were tearing families apart rather than trying to keep them together to be able to move on and not live in such an abusive situation. So, you know, the perspective is reality. And so I think it's also an educational issue that we've really worked hard on as far as the state's concerned. What happened to you, if you remember, Ann, was the Herald Leaders to Heaven to Harm? Yes. Do you remember that? That was that was an that was landmark, like for that, for the state and where it was going to go. And then it, all this money kind of poured in federally to do different legislations that came out in the 90s because this research to Heaven to Harm I think that was the name of it, it to have the harm. It won the Pulitzer. It won a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. That's correct. And it just was instrumental when we started to, we were kind of being seen, even though we had this mandatory reporting part of our legislation that people didn't like. Everything else that was happening kind of broke wide open after that. I also think that we also began actually documenting for the first time how this evolution took place and we realized that it's generational you know from most families you know domestic violence and sexual assault were was a generational issue along with poverty and education and all that so when we started actually documenting uh, the research to back up our gut feelings because really and truly in the beginning all we had were gut feelings we didn't have data and research really out there so anecdotal yes so yeah. when we actually got the research going as far as backing up our assertions that this was a generational thing and how were we going to break that cycle then you know that's when we became what I would consider relevant and had a foothold on why we actually did need to be 
doing this concerted effort through our state and through the United States. Right. And we got a lot of footing, too. I, you know, I think KCADV has a tremendous amount of respect. I want advocates to know that, that it really, yes, you know, Sherry is, was central to that. She's a brilliant strategist when it came to legislation, but also when it came to public policy. And so what happened is KCADV just really did garner a lot of influence you could say across the board. I mean, people wanted us to be their friend in this movement. It was important. So, you know, we were able to help do, you know, one of the first groups to do clemency and get people, get battered women who were only there because they took the life of their partner because that was the only way they were going to be free from the violence that they were enduring. So we were one of the first groups to successfully get women you know, to have clemency or eventually were pardoned, but not early. Early on, it was a clemency act. So we were able to do tremendous things because of our influence. And we did that methodically also. We did, we researched all of those women who had murdered their partners or husbands so that it wasn't necessarily, you know, just an act of violence that came out of nowhere. It was years and years of abuse that put those women in that kind of life a sustaining moment when they knew it was either their life or the perpetrator's life, you know. So we didn't do it randomly. We researched and made sure that, and I hate to say that these women were deserving of clemency, but they were deserving of clemency. They were deserving of pardons because of what they had endured. So, you know, we backed up, we did the homework, we did the work that I think is what the strength of our current being is, you know, we started out, like I said, you know, from ground zero back in the late 70s and early 80s. But we actually, I think, were very thoughtful in the way our state thought through how we're going to make our case to prove our value to this state and this country by let's eliminate violence in our lifetime. And nobody had ever said that before. Nobody had ever taken up that mantra before that we want to eliminate domestic violence and sexual assault in our lifetime. I think we did later, we came across with, you know, tobacco and, and you know, drunk driving and all those kinds of things. But nobody had ever really said we want to eliminate domestic violence. So. It's hard to be out front and say you're for violence in the home, right? You know, right. so so there was that. But I do know with the monumental amount of legislation and conversations that were going on in the late 80s and 90s, which you all have been listing, you know, protective orders, warrantless arrests, full faith and credit. Attorney General Janet Reno comes and says Kentucky's going to be the, the model laboratory of things. You know, Vine starts coming up, Link starts coming up, which is law enforcement's network, you know, all these things. And I know you responded a little bit to the backlash that sometimes, you know, you're against family values and you're pro-divorce and all these pieces. But I imagine to maintain, to maintain that mo- momentum and that movement, you had to make amazing allies and probably do a lot of reaching across to, to maybe, unu- I always sort of call them unusual suspects. Like you kind of know who's going to be at the table, but what was sort of the philosophy then? I know we had governor's task force, right? So we had people kind of coming together, sexual assault program did, but was there anything, any interesting stories around, you know, how you sort of build bridges with folks or that you knew that KCADB had built bridges with folks to kind of move forward that agenda that needed beyond just the domestic violence programs? Well, I, I think Governor Patton 
gave us a lot of credibility when he created, you know, the Office for Domestic Violence. I think that was a very big legitimizer, or if that's even a word, I don't know. But when he did that, you know, I think that helped solidify our value in the state of Kentucky as far as we need you need to listen to us. You know, we're the experts. We kept telling everybody, we're the experts. Well, yeah, you know, that that's easy. You know, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. But we put, I think, the money where our mouth was when Governor Patton said, this is really an important issue and, and we're going we're gonna to make a concerted effort to back this organization up. And I think that was that was kind of a tipping point from my perspective on how we could legitimize who we were and what our mission was. Well, there's been a, a lot. I totally agree. There's been leadership from a state level that can really help legitimize the work and what we're doing. I think, though, for me, those little light bulb moments that happen so having to do, been a part of the legislation committee, legislative committee, and I've both been doing that for years, and, and going into Frankfurt or whatever, is finally just kind of let go of who's labeled conservative and who's not. You know, I mean, yes, we might take for granted that maybe those that are, you know, consider themselves more progressive or Democrats are probably going to follow what we would like to do. But you know what? There's tremendous leadership on both sides many times. It just takes a while sometimes for them to see what that's going to look like. So there's these aha. I remember in dating violence, we were having a hard time <laughs> getting people to understand the fact that intimate partner violence does not discriminate. It doesn't care you care if you have a marriage license or not, right? It does not matter. But that sense of preserving the family still and, you know, who really needs protected and this. What I have found that most people who are in leadership roles really do want to protect they do believe that their role is to protect its, you know, its residents of its community kind of thing. But those aha moments and, and you know, one in particular, we were sitting there and all of a sudden I, I remember this particular legislator. He just kind of he slammed his hands on this table. He, and he sat back and out. We've been talking for hours in this small group and he's brought this group together and he's trying to get it. And finally, I can't remember what was said now, but he just slammed his head on the table and he goes, oh, my gosh. I have it. And I swear he repeated exactly what Sherry Kearns and I had said for the last two hours in this meeting with him. And he just finally got it. And from then on, he was our champion in everything. You know, like, so it's like truth. You know, truth is when it kind of comes to you and you have this heightened awareness now, whether it's about intimate partner violence or race or gender or any of these things, when you have those moments, then you become a champion of it. And I think we've been blessed to have lots of those moments. Sometimes it takes a while to get there. But usually, I just need to trust somewhere in my gut that people want to do the right things. People do not want to see men, women, or children hurt in their relationships. People do not want to open their papers and see that someone yet again was murdered or a life was taken or it was a you know, a homicide, suicide situation with children in the house. Those are things. And our legislators and our community leaders are supposed to be protecting us. So I think there's probably been a hundred or more kind of moments. People who've made, they came along at a very critical time when we needed them most 
to do it, you know, just like the Herald Leader did when we really needed that. And Louisville, Louisville had one of the first fatality reviews and did a major report, which shifted the entire state and what they were looking for, even in fatalities. We had Mary Byron, unfortunately, who passed away, who was murdered, which changed the country and how we notify victims. And that happened in the state of Kentucky. You know, Kentucky took action and the right people at the right time. And sometimes we fall a little short, but we, we seem to always get there. I think it's always important for folks that are listening. And I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because I do think there can be a tendency to leave people behind by presuming they're never going to be our ally. They're never going to be part of our work. They're never going to be part of the solution. And I think we can make a lot of error in that way. You know, so if you're an advocate that's just starting out doing this work, you know, look out into your community, look out into your courts, look out into your other nonprofits, like look into those programs and don't presume someone's never going to be on your team because sometimes you have to sit with someone for two hours and they might finally have the aha moment. Sometimes you have to say the same message seven times. Sometimes they find that somebody in their family has experienced it and then the light bulb comes on, right? So, you know, slowly we can begin to sort of turn the tide a little bit. And I think it's always critical not to presume these folks are always against us. And that's the important thing, Diane, is when I, we talk a lot about keeping one foot in the system and one foot out, right? I think the most, the reason I am so engaged with KCADV and how it's been is it it is a group of integrity. It's imperfect, Right. Right. All of us are in this work, but it is one of integrity. And we've made hard decisions. We've not supported legislation that people would have assumed we would have supported. And we have not. And that's not easy because you've got, you know, leaders pushing it, you know, through the Senate and the House. And you're going, we cannot be a part of that at this moment. But if we do things with integrity and with voice and we never lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing, and it's not about power And it's not about privilege. It's about bringing voice, being that mouthpiece for survivors who can't bring that to the table themselves. If we don't lose sight of the who and the why we're doing this, then we will always come at that end of integrity. And that's what I would ask all advocates, like understand your history, understand it. Don't lose sight of the why ever, because it'll keep you grounded in the work, even when it's tough decisions that can tear you apart inside, not sure if you've made it or not, but if you do it with integrity, and I think KCADV does and has, I think that's why we're where we are. I think so too. And I, oh, can I just, but we'll go back to what you're going to say, Anne, but I think it's one of the things too in the integrity and how KCADV has tried to operate and add legitimacy to the work, to the, being the expert in the field, to being referred to. I wanted to make sure at some point we talk a little bit about, about being part of the member program and about victim service standards, which we now call member program service standards. And it is a daunting document, right? It, it's it it's is. hefty. You know, it's, a, it's, it's our a, constitution. It's our constitution. It is our constitution. Yeah. It is our constitution. Yeah. And, and how I, late were we up? And we were up till one o'clock in the morning working on it. It and is a beautiful thing. In the morning. And it's a fluid document because it has changed in the last 20 years. Not drastically, but as things evolve and our services evolve, then we have to evolve. And I think we've been mindful of that. 
on a that's regular funny. basis. I'm so sorry because I can remember that meeting and when we finally finalized the case. It was one o'clock stage. in the morning. I think it was later. Yeah. It felt much later if it wasn't. Let me tell you, it was late and we had been working on it since nine that morning or since something. Nine like we started that morning. that morning. Yeah. And I'm telling you, but what's beautiful about this is this group of people who sometimes, I mean, you know, there were a few going, I'm leaving. Y'all are full of it. We cannot do this. It's too much to ask. And, you know, because you're just exhausted from this whole measure, but every one of us knew it was going to be important yeah. like if we were going to take on the contract and the state was going to trust us with that integrity we had to hold ourselves in some you know to in account for what we were going to take right. on we were being kind of forced to take on quite honestly but boy we did get through it and it has not changed very much no. it was a pretty brilliant it's piece cha- of work. it's changed as some a technology has changed yeah. you know or but not the core but not the core no you know I say this all the time. To me, domestic violence and sexual assault is a nonpartisan issue. It takes no hostages as far as whether you're a Democrat or Republican or black or white or Asian or educated or non-educated or rich or poor. It doesn't matter. It takes everybody. And I think that's where sometimes we as a a state and we as a country get bogged down in trying to make it partisan politics when it should be a human rights issue, a social justice issue, and something that every single person can actually say, this is the way we want this world to be. And this is what we're going to do to make it happen. And until we all embrace that, and until we all say, you know, it, I don't care what party you belong to. We want to end domestic violence and sexual assault in our lifetime. Period. 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 I love For, this. Go, I love this quote. I said it to you all before, but just because you said that right then, I wasn't quite sure how to sneak it in, but I knew I would somehow. I like this, and I apologize that I don't know who said it. I kind of tried to look it up, but it says it is always critical to keep our feet solidly in the camps that are pushing for equal rights and human justice. Yeah. So we are here dealing with violence against women. We are here dealing with violence in the home, intimate partner violence. But with that, it is a social justice, human justice it's a human rights movement issue. worldwide. Yeah. It yes. is. Yeah. And it's we have lots of human rights. Exactly. <laughs> yes. But it is definitely yeah. one of them. Yeah. And, and I, you have to look at it more broadly, too. You know, you can get stuck in just the one lens, but all of it affects, you know, survivors come to us as whole people, not parts of people. And the part that has been victimized is what we know well, but they also come to us with a whole host of other pieces of themselves that we have to look at. And that's that's what makes it the human rights issue. It's much bigger yeah. in a sense. So we have to have our feet in those camps yes. as well. Yeah. And I think, as, as you all said, victim service standards, the core of it has not changed greatly. Yeah. Member program service standards, but which it's now called. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably going through that certification. But I do think what it's done in the beginning, right? You kind of, as you said, we didn't know really quite what we were doing. We didn't quite know how to open a shelter. We didn't quite know how to do it. We know how to do those things now. There's discussion and debate a little bit, but we basically know we have information behind it. But I think where I've seen member program service standards evolve is making sure that we're naming things and giving access to things. So it was in the document. You had to have some good faith presumption that it was in the document, right? That people had access to services. But now we're kind of able to look at it in a little more 
I don't know, a, a more a broader net. We're like we're casting a wider net to make sure that everybody who needs our services knows that there is a seat at the table for them in our programs, you know, um, and that's where I like the expansion. And I think it I think those I think it hits things head on. Well, it's had to expand. I mean, the, the population. I mean, when I started 30 some years ago. It looked a lot different, you know, who was coming to shelter, who was accessing services compared to today. And it seems to me there's much more vulnerability for people who are coming to shelters today. We managed to solve some, not solve, but we managed to put things in place that help move people quickly. We could keep them housed. We could quickly rehouse them. Like we've been addressing these issues in different ways in order to help survivors move from crisis to self-sufficiency. So what we're seeing is really vulnerable populations more than ever, not just about intimate partner violence, but substance abuse and mental health, those things that we're now tackling in shelter, which was not necessarily, I mean, you know, 30 some years ago, if you had a shelter of 25, you might have one or two that were struggling with addiction issues and and chronic homelessness. And that is not the case today. So you're right. The the member standards have had to evolve because we want to be accessible and we need to make sure that we are serving the most need. You know, the people who need us the most are the hardest to serve. Yes. Right. And so what we try to make sure that we've opened that. And as we've learned, you know, the needs of non-English speaking residents of our communities and, you know, we we're learning and we keep opening and broadening LGBTQ communities and understanding, you know, transgender, you know, all this it's not new, it's but it's been evolving and we want to be in the you know, leading that effort. And also growth. getting back a little bit to our roots, as one of you all said in the very beginning of our civil rights. So, you know, making sure that that, do- that door is open for people of color. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots of conversation. Well, I just want to k- kind of throw this out too. You know, a lot of times we've been seen as putting a Band-Aid on domestic violence and sexual assault in our state and in our country. And what I want to say to you know, this group from a historical perspective, we're not going to make great inroads, in my opinion, until we create a level playing field for all of our community. And when I talk about a level playing field, I'm talking about educational playing field, job playing field, a resource and access to resources in the playing field. Income. That's the one missing link that the state of Kentucky, in my opinion, until we raise the level of accessibility to way of life that's sustainable, uh, not poverty level, not not the bottom of the barrel in education, not the bottom of the barrel in, in job opportunity, until we bring that level up, we've still are going to be working for a long time in this field because the people that need us the most are the ones who have the least access to crawl out of that situation. So we've got to make sure that families have access to life-sustaining jobs, educational opportunity that brings them out of it. And until we get to that level, we're all still, in my opinion, big business as far as domestic violence and sexual assault, because that's the folks who fall in the cracks that keep that generational issue going on for themselves, going on for their children and going on for their grandchildren. Because I've been there long enough now that I'm seeing the grandchildren of women who walk through my doors and they'll look at me and go, oh, Miss Perkins, do you remember me? I was here when I was like six years old and like this is the greatest place that I ever remember as a child. And I, it breaks my 
heart. And I say, all I can say, honey, is I'm just so glad you're here. I'm just so glad you're here. And she's there as a young mother now with her children, bringing that, you know, bringing those memories to me. So I say we got a lot of work to do. You know, we aren't breaking that cycle for those families until we raise that family. I agree. I, I mean, I think there's that piece of what the work that we have to do left. I also think, and you know, no, Anne feels the same way. We really need to celebrate the fact that a lot of our families aren't coming back anymore. Yeah. A lot of our families are breaking the cycles. We are, we have been able to lift them out yeah. with our services and our programs and providing housing and education. But that's because we've made a concerted because, effort. That's right. Because we weren't just three meals and a bed. That's right. We understood that that family needed that infrastructure, so we got them into schools, and we got them into college, and we helped them find jobs. And that, to me, is where this coalition and the historical perspective of where we were, you know, three hots and a cot, supposedly, as Helen Kitten would say, you know, (laughs) that's we've come a long way. We've come a long way, but we've still got a long way to go because we're still falling way below where we should be as a state. And the only way I know how to do that is build that infrastructure, which is funding opportunities for jobs and safe homes, you know, safe places to live and education. So I think, like I said, from a historical perspective, we still got a lot of work to do. And I think it was one of you all that said, you know, we did sort of have that heyday in the 90s, right? But there has been sort of this, I think, Darlene, it was you that said that we seem to be in a little bit of a resurgence the past few years because there has been a lot of positive legislation that is pretty recent. And I really want new folks to know that too, because sometimes a law passed and you just presume it's always been on the books, but strangulation, ending mandatory reporting, dating violence, all of the housing and economic work, like that is sort of relatively new in the 2010 maybe yes. and, and after. So, you know, we're just sort of enjoying reaping the joy of that piece. I guess we're a little bit of a place to kind of close. I don't know if there's any messages for new advocates that are sort of embarking on this journey of advocacy um, and inviting them into the sisterhood with sort of that philosophy of you said kind of keeping one foot in you know the system and one foot out but we have a lot of advocates that I think have one system in the community but not in the shelter where the daily work gets done and vice versa it can get really overwhelming while you're doing shelter work and you're doing intake and room changes and you know doing that and you tend to forget what's going on, the importance of what's going on on the community. You know, you you want to have a little bit of an of a connection I think to both happening. It's hard to do good let this is what I'm trying to say. It's hard to do really good legislation if you don't know the daily experience of the families that we're helping. And it also can get really overwhelming if you get stuck in the daily and you don't see the progress that's being made. Well, that's why history is important, right? Yeah. That's really where the history comes. Because I hear young advocates all the time going, our police need training. Our judges need training. And we were the first state nation who mandated law enforcement training. Yeah. And, and it continues to today. So the, knowing the history, knowing where you came from, where you've been, you know, and I always tease when I, you know, have trained, um, well, not really tease, but when I 
talk about to new advocates, you know, things, the fact that you're even in the courtroom is because most of us were kicked out of the courtrooms and kicked out of the counties and we're told you couldn't come back. Like I literally was kicked out of a county by a judge and said, I don't ever want to see you again. And the police escorted my car out of that county at that time. And all I did was challenge prosecutor who was going to prosecute a woman for getting beaten up and almost drowned in the pool because she went home. And so they were offering him a protective order because she went home. And I go, are you kidding me? course, this was young. I was young and probably didn't choose my language quite as well as I do today. But, you know, I'm like, are you kidding me? We're back in that day. I mean, (laughs) that we're blaming victims and they're like out of my county, you know, they take me to the judge and I get reprimanded. That's a story, but they're allowed. And we fought because of that and being strip searched and stories that happened to young advocates back then don't happen today. Like courts can't throw you out of the courtroom. That's because of we had to fight hard for victims to have a safe person with them at all times throughout this process. It was not an easy win, but even the privilege, counselor privilege, you know, we police don't even bother our shelters hardly anymore. Um, they know better. You're not well, coming there, are, there. We're not telling you anything. We're not giving you anybody. It's been a long road to create allies in the justice cabinet, in my opinion. You know, 35 years ago, when I walked into my very first meeting with Judge Patterson, who was a lawyer at the time, and the judge started the whole meeting, he says, I've got a joke for you. Women are just like copy machines. The more you touch them, the more they put out. And that's how we started that meeting. My first meeting with a judge over domestic violence. I was like dumbfounded. That's how he started the meeting. I've got a joke for you. Yeah. So we have come a long way. We've got a lot of work to do. And I think, you know, we're just, we're at a threshold for either moving us, you know, forward, or I certainly don't want to take two steps back. I cannot imagine with the two of you in this room that we'll be taking two steps back. I, I would be hard pressed to sort of believe that. And and with, you know, the folks that are up at KCADV and, you know, we've just have a new crew of folks that are at our shelter program and, you know, they're you know, they're young and they're new in the work, but their passion is there, which is always, you know, good to see. And so, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't think we're going to go two steps back. Like, yeah. But Anne and I aren't going to be here forever or other no. directors around this so, table. It really is about these young advocates knowing their history, becoming engaged and excited about it and understanding that it's the the day-to-day of the work can feel really heavy until you understand that you fit into a much larger picture. It's called activism. It is called taking action. And not take engaged, a no for an answer. And how to appropriately yeah. not to take no, right? And to, for how, an how to yeah. be nice <laughs> and not take no for Not an answer. break your relationship, but still hold <laughs> yeah, your ground, to right? challenge them. You know, I, you know, I was at the Louisville program one time, and I have all these police there, and they're all mad at me because I took in a woman from another state that really was the only survivor of a witness. So there was like four or five people witnessed a murder in this other state, and she, they had all been killed except her. I know it sounds like a movie, but it was that's what happened. And they were trying to hide her within two or three hours, trying to keep her alive until hopefully they could prosecute who they believed had taken the other people's lives. But long story short, you know, they're all there because this group found her within hours of her being in our shelter. 
at that time. And the, I had to call the police in. I have no police around. And they're like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Why would you take in somebody with this much risk? You put everybody in here at risk. How could you? And I remember just looking at them going, this is what we do. We do this every single day. We take in people every day who are at risk of being killed. Yeah. That's why we exist. This should not shock you as law enforcement. But then the one officer said, well, we really shouldn't be having any further discussions with Ms. Thomas because, you know, she's testifying against us in another case, which we were. But, you know, the, the beauty of being with an organization who allows you to partner but also hold systems to account, right, is I will play nice. I will, I will, but I'm going to be a voice. And if that might not go well, I'm sorry, we're going to do it. And the agency and the coalition will do that too. And so I just need young advocates to know we have your back. You know, you do need to bring voice. You don't need to take no for an answer. You need to ask why. I tell you the best advocates, and I say it all the time, are those that are curious. When they are curious and when they want to go, that does not make sense to me. Why is it that way? And then they go find out why or they work to change it. And be ready to question, you know, the status quo. Just because we've been doing things for 100 years doesn't mean that that's the way it needs to be done. We need to question the status quo. Maybe it's just a, a me space, but I think you can do that through relationships, right? Yeah. So. So you get in there, you meet folks, you have relationships. So that time you do have to call someone to task, whether that's a judge or a prosecutor or an attorney or whatever, or the person who starts the meeting with a bad joke, right? You're you're operating from a better place if you have those kind of relationships where you can kind of come back. Feel free to go back if you're a new advocate to go back to your director, your supervisor. Something doesn't look right. Open up your eyes as you're going into court. Does something Could something be better? Could the experience of a woman coming into this court be improved or be better if we just did things a little bit differently? See how other communities do their work. See how other states do their work. But I think there's a lot of pride in what KCADV has done, a lot of pride of what Kentucky has done. And we don't always get a lot of accolades, but Kentucky's done some phenomenal work with intimate partner violence. Well, we have zero monies as far as I'm concerned as far as lobbying is concerned. So when you don't have any money, we're just really honest to goodness, a grassroots lobbying effort. There is no money behind what we do. We don't put money in anybody's pockets to make any kind of changes about anything. So the grassroots efforts that we've utilized for the past you know, 35, 40 years is how we've got to where we are today. It wasn't about money because we didn't have any and we still don't have any. You know, we're still begging for money just to keep our programs going. So, you know, so we're still working on that evolution of our importance and how we are going to make change happen. You know, the only way I can see that happening is, again, Working across the aisles, making it a nonpartisan issue, that it is a social justice issue that we need to fix. Which is what I really love about KCADB and our member programs. It's grit. It's a lot of audacity. It's a lot of compassion. And so sometimes it might be nice to have that lobbyist, but I kind of like how we do our grassroots work. So thank you all ladies so much for being here. I've been listening to Darlene Thomas, the executive director of Greenhouse 17, and Ann Perkins, who's the executive director of Safe Harbor. And you've been listening to the KCADV podcast series on module one, history of domestic violence in Kentucky.
welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Module 1, History of Domestic Violence and Expectations and Challenges of Advocacy. We hope you review the materials that have been sent to you, or you can visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome to KCADV Certifications Podcast Series. This is Module 1, History of Domestic Violence, along with Expectations and Challenges of Advocacy. And with me today is Darlene Thomas. She is the Executive Director at Greenhouse 17, and I am Diane Fleet, also with Greenhouse 17. So we have Greenhouse 17 team here today. (laughs) Hello. We do. Yes. We kind of know each other. Yes, Mm -hmm. we do. I'm going to start right out with, so we're going to talk about advocates, right? So this is something that I often hear in my role. I often hear new advocates say, I'm not prepared to handle the myriad of issues that a victim might need for support. What do you say to the 25-year-old new advocate when they are starting to delve into the very complex issues of domestic violence, sexual abuse, immigration, oppression of being in the system, substance use, mental health? They're all such big, complex, messy things. And we ask a lot of a brand new advocate just starting out in their world. And we do this you know, certification process and we do a 40-hour training and then we go go forth. So do you have some words of comfort or do you have some advice for these new for these new folks that are be joining in on this podcast? So run is probably not the appropriate answer no, at this moment, no. right? No, absolutely not to run. No, I think the best words of advice. Well, first, most people have already probably delved into it a little bit even before they're listening to this podcast. So, you know, they're already being met with those challenges. So the answer that I would give the words of wisdom would be to breathe, to take time to know that it's not okay. I mean, that it's okay not to have all the answers. What we really need to do is practice on being present for other human beings and just kind of absorbing the knowledge, the information that's coming to you. Make sure that you use colleagues and supervisors to kind of bounce really more critical, serious issues that you're not sure what to do with. And know that it just takes time. This doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You can go to school forever when you really have to sit with human beings is when you really are humbled to realize what we don't know and how serious this truly is beyond the textbooks or beyond what somebody trained you 40 hours about because it's real and it's in front of you and it weighs heavy and it changes the who that you are. It You don't go back to being, you know, the student that came to this work. Like it just shifts your awareness and the acute reality of what people do to other human beings. So that kind of weight is important that you take time to breathe and you take time to reflect and that you don't take ownership over other people's stories or issues, but to know that this part of the learning curve, and I promise in about three years, I don't know, there's this magic marker about three years, three years is what it takes to grow. Like, I don't want new employees to have all the answers. I don't think you're going to fix complex situations. If that were the case, we wouldn't need our services. We could just have our wands. You know, I go through the building all the time. You know, when people complain or fuss about something's happened with residents or our families. And I just go, oh, where's that magic wand? It doesn't exist. The magic is the you that you bring to the work. That's the magic. And you just got to give it time to do its job. But if you give yourself grace and each other grace, I think you'll do much better and be around for a lot longer. 
One of the things that I think you and I've talked about many times, but the unique experience of working in a shelter setting. So not everybody listening in in this is in a shelter setting. They might be in community. They might be doing non-residential support groups, courts, whatever. But there's a unique experience of being in the shelter setting where you're with someone 24-7 and you're not there just for that one to three o'clock appointment every other Wednesday or that Tuesday night support group. But you have such opportunity in the house to be present with people and to begin to build that relationship and trust. And I think advocates sometimes think that every encounter has to be this meaty encounter, right? Like I've got to talk about this. I got to fix this. We got to talk about this case plan, goal plan. We got to do their history. But we miss sometimes the importance of the more subtle interactions that can take place in shelter. Well, absolutely. I think if you're doing other pieces of the work, if you start this work in outreach or doing public education or, you know, professional trainings, things like that, you are a little more protected from the heaviness of the work because you're only bumping into it through courts. Not that it's not heavy because you're still hearing horrible stories, but you're getting pieces and fragments. Your bigger frustration is going to be systemically anyway, right? How the courts do things or what the police did or didn't do or how people did or didn't respond to the survivor. So your lens becomes a little different. In shelter, it is encompassing. It's all of those things. It's systems and how the barriers that survivors have that are frustrating as an advocate that you're trying to help navigate and negotiate with the survivor. But it's also, you know, realizing that, you know, it is important for survivors just to kind of know where they're living and what that feels like. And so to play, to have fun, to go out back and just sit with somebody. It doesn't have to always be in depth to say hello, to smile when you walk in the door. It means the world, the survivors. When you're in shelter, you know, it's like living in your own home. The things and the intimacies that take place in your own home It's not what you give to everybody that comes visits, right? The same, but in shelter, you're kind of part of their own home. It's the home. And so we are seeing survivors at their most real, vulnerable, messy selves. And so I think it's just important just to check in and be and play and have fun and look at things beyond violence because survivors are much more than the violence and they've endured. And we need to find those pieces of survivors as well. I think one of the things too that new folks in this work often struggle with is, okay, I'm going to kind of get to this place of being comfortable and being present and just being part of and, and beginning to learn how to build trust and build that connection with folks. But I always like the term intellectual curiosity. I don't know if I got that first from you or from someone else. I think maybe the intellectual curiosity, I think I've used the word curiosity a little bit. As you're beginning to find, connect with folks, digging in a little bit to find out what makes that brings them joy, what brings, what makes them tick will then evolve to as you're beginning to get their history. And I think this is, you know me, darling, and I tend to ask questions in a really backward sort of way. But we are taught as advocates to believe, believe, believe. Whatever that survivor tells us, we are here to believe you and your story. But sometimes when there's like lack of trust or we're just beginning to figure out who we are, sometimes we have to dig a little bit to find out really what's going on. And we find that that can be unsettling for some advocates. They might find it to be a little disrespectful or I don't I don't believe what they're telling me, especially when you're dealing with substance use maybe or behavior that is maybe not quite as healthy or they're not quite as proud of it. But if we're not talking about that, can we really be doing good advocacy if we're not dealing with a person in whole? So do you have any suggestions for folks as they're beginning to push a little bit, just push a little bit into that curiosity, into those uncomfortable conversations? 
That was a really long question. That was a very long question with an hour's worth of answers. But wow, we might have to go revisit some pieces of that. We will. I would say that it is in the building of the trust. When we say believe, 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 it just means we believe that trauma has occurred and that their life has been affected by that. That doesn't mean we have to believe every word (laughs) that necessarily comes out. You know, uh, it's the reality of the survivor. It's not my job to question you know, their truth or their reality in the beginning. It's my job to listen and to hear. And then through experience and time, I will also start to understand how you begin to realize or how you begin to read between the lines a little bit better. It's not about winning or being right either as an advocate. So sometimes I've heard that too, like they're lying to me. They're not being truthful. Well, that's okay. Let's find out why. What is the reason that survivors who need our help, who who are the most vulnerable, they come live in shelter or they're coming to our services, things aren't great in their lives or they wouldn't be seeking our help, right? So let's find out what's underneath that. Why do people lie? Has that been self-preservation? Do they believe we won't believe them? Do they believe we won't judge them? Is this say as much about us, we as an organization, we as a program, we as an individual doing the work as it does about the survivor? So sometimes we create the barriers, but it doesn't mean you should never either challenge too. If things don't make sense, that what's being told to you, that is important. It's it, To me, it's neglectful in some ways not to challenge a resident for truth and then invite, why Why is it hard? Like, it's hard for me to help you if you can't be honest with me, right? Like, And I get why you wouldn't be honest. Why would you trust me? Right. You know, we've known each other a short time, but for us to get from here to here, you know, for you to really reach these goals and the things that I'm hearing you say you need, you know, what is it going to take for us to get to that kind of trusting relationship? Because even if you feel like you need to use, if you lie to me, then I'm afraid that something terrible is going to happen to you. I would rather help you do that safely, right? right? If you really are not ready to end your relationship with your abuser, there's nothing about our organization that requires you to do that, right? I don't, if you're not ready to do that, then let's talk about safety. Should you decide to see your partner? Should you decide to go, you know, visit or meet up for a little while or, you know, have discussions, you know, let's talk about your safety, safety planning. And so the more that we can invite advocates and you say intellectual curiosity, you know, I think the best advocates on the planet are really nosy. That's probably the best word for it. You're just nosy. And not because you trying to be meddling in everybody's business all the time necessarily, but it's nosy because you care. It's nosy because you're trying to think about things that maybe survivors don't think of as part of their survival. They don't always see their safety risks. So if we're a little nosy and we say, hey, are you, you know, have any intentions of talking to your partner that hurt you or going to meet them or visiting them and they go and they own up to it? Yes, we have. Well, then let's talk about safety. But if you hadn't been nosy, if you don't ask, then you can't help. Right. I sometimes wonder in our way of sometimes blocking that off of not being nosy, of not delving a little bit deeper. And sometimes folks will say, well, I'm doing it out of respect. They'll come to me when they're ready to come to me. I don't want to push. You know, I don't want to do those things. I think sometimes it really is for self-preservation to use your term just a second ago that you did. I'm not comfortable going there. And thank goodness they didn't take me there. Right. So if I don't ask that we can't go there and then everybody's good. Right. We're just going to sit out here and have a bologna sandwich and be happy about it because I've not dug into the substance use that might be going on because I just don't want to even venture in. And even to take that a little bit step back a bit, we always want programs to screen in 
rather than screen out. Heard you say it the other day. And so I think that same thing can kind of play out there. What are we afraid of that we're screening out versus screening in? Like, what's that motivation? And why is it so important that we approach the the phone call, the crisis line, the the court advocacy in a screening in mentality rather than a screening out mentality? Again, multiple questions. I know, so I know. the first answer would be a lot of it is self-preservation for advocates. I think I've heard over the years, there's a fear that somehow you're going to take a survivor to a place they can't come back from. You know, you're going to push them over the edge and they're going to have breakdowns in the whole nine yards. And that's not true. A, we don't have that power. B, survivors give us what they're willing to give us based on the relationships we're able to do. And we'll, they'll give pieces of themselves as they're ready. So we don't have that capacity. There's no skill set. You're not going to do harm. You do more harm by not asking than you do by asking. The other things I want advocates to really think about is we only have a short time. It is not like if, if you've gone to school and you, you know, a lot of times I think you learn that you should just be patient and and people should tell you their story and let them divulge that when they want to. Look, we got a month, two months, three months of time to really have a long-term impact before survivors move on. We don't have two years of therapy for them to set through. So the more we can engage and question and bring to light and help survivors understand their barriers and their batterers, what to expect and how to be safe and what that can look like for the future, the, the better. Like we don't have a lot of time, so we need to get to it. And curiosity is one way to do it. You mentioned batterers. And so that was really the next place I wanted to go to. So in, in all of this nosiness or curiosity and building trust and building relationship, it's often really about the survivor that's in front of you. Why is it so critical that we hear about the perpetrator too and the tactics that abusers use? Well, I think we spend a lot of time talking about survivors, right? And their behaviors and what they do or don't do and how they get out and how many times it takes them to get out and all these basic, you know, facts about intimate partner violence. The problem with that is, is we don't know the batterer, right? And if we don't know the batterer, it's really hard to help a survivor. If you think about it, survivors, when they come to us, the one thing they already know they've been victimized. They already many times can identify multiple ways that they've used their own tactics in order to survive or mitigate or navigate and negotiate a violent relationship. They're kind of attuned to that. They've probably missed some pieces that you're going to help bring to light, the other coping skills and mechanisms that are going to present themselves. But what they always want to know is why does our, my partner do this? That is their number one question. Why, why, why? I've tried to be good. I've tried to be kind. You know, I've tried to do everything asked for me. I followed the family rules. I, you know, I've given everything I know to give. So what is it about me that is not worthy enough of the love of the person that said they love me, but it definitely is not showing it. And so I think that's the questions of, you know, for survivors to understand the only way you can really help the survivor as an advocate is to understand batters and batters behaviors, because then we can put a new lens. We can take the lens off themselves and what they're doing or not doing and put it right back on the batter. And I do think that's a huge component that's missed in our field is understanding batters very, very well so that we can often anticipate what the batter might do next or not going to do next. And then every time those things come to fruition, then survivors think and go, oh, this is about them. This is about the batter's behavior, not about me. Because see, I'm not even there. And the batter's going through a cycle. You know, one minute right. they're threatening and the next minute they're begging. And the next minute they're pleading and, you know, 
telling me the world will be different. And I'm not even there and they're doing it. So it's critical for survivor. I mean, for advocates to take time to learn about batters and batters. It, it will help them more than anything with survivors. It's probably scary at first, right, as a victim to kind of feel that you don't have some control to navigate how the relationship will go. And I imagine a lot of women will spend a great deal of time amending their own behavior and personality in hopes that they're mitigating or navigating the violence, right? If I mm-hmm. only did this, if I did this better. And when you get to the point where you kind of lose hope or control of the belief that you can make those changes, then I think you might go through a little bit of, I don't mean to go through stages of grief, but you might go through a little bit of a helpless stage of, I don't know. But then if you can turn the corner and do as you just said, and really like, let's put this back on the batterer's behavior. And when you're saying that, are you talking more about the tactics that batterers use so you can sort of safety plan around what tactic they might take next? Or are you really talking more about the motivation as to why they matter? Both. Both. It's both. So survivors need to understand that the motivation comes from power and control. We can say that all day long and we can give examples of their experience in that. But to be able to explain how that benefits the batter or this particular batter. So there's different types of batters and, you know, they happen on a continuum. It's not that everybody fits in one box as a batter by any means. But when we understand those, then I can say, oh, you know, that's, you know, kind of typical behavior of a batter. And so you might see this, this, is this true about your partner? Have they done, utilize these tactics of power and control? And they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can go, oh, but this is how it's benefited them. This is what they may do next. So we need to be really careful when we go to court. They're probably already got paperwork. Anything you've ever written, anything you've ever done, they've probably already have that ready to go into court to hold against you. Any text you've ever sent. like So you as an advocate can start to understand batters well enough that you can help survivors navigate their safety by understanding uh, not only the batter and the batter's behaviors, but how it benefits them. And that it doesn't just end because they left. You know, we talk about all the time in this work in this field that the most dangerous time for a victim is when the batter or is when the victim leaves. And that is true. And we know that. But do we know why? And are we able to help survivors understand why and why it doesn't just go away? Batters are not going to quit. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're at shelter and we can keep you safe as long as you're in this building. But beyond that, there are no guarantees with batters and batters behaviors. And the one thing we don't know about batters specifically is which ones will kill and which ones won't. So we need to be preparing every survivor for the reality that when they even leave our programs or go back into their homes and they've gotten a protective order or they've gone to court or they're in our groups, that the reality is, is that the batterers make the choice of what happens next. All we can do is try to anticipate and predict it based on the batter behavior. But if you don't know batters, we're kind of leaving ourselves and survivors left to still navigate and guess all the time. Just vulnerable. Just vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best word, vulnerable. Yeah. It's one of the things that I've really noticed. I don't know why I've noticed it so much lately, because I think it's always happened, but there seems to be this, I think domestic violence shelters serve an amazing purpose. It does wonderful things. It's it's needed as a safe place, as a rest, as a space for folks to kind of build what their next level may be. But it's not the be all end all, and it's not the answer. And I sometimes see our own staff as well as, I mean, Greenhouse just domestic violence advocates in general, but also community partners. And I think, again, it's a little bit, I don't know what to do with this person, but if I can just get them to shelter, done. You know, it's like checked off, like we've resolved this. And it's like, you know, it's okay for this person to come to the domestic violence shelter, but what's going to happen in a month? Like you're having this person leave her house 
in another county with all of her support system. In about a month, we're just going to be talking about going right back to that process. So is there something differently we can do? Because the battering doesn't stop. It might look different. The tactics might look different. Things are still going to be in place. And, and maybe you do need a month or two to regroup, maybe. But I also see sometimes there's just this presumption that we just need to bubble and cocoon victims of domestic violence for the rest of their life without the reality that at some time they're going to go back out into that Yes, you community. can't live in shelters forever. You can you know, And nor would you want to, in no. all honesty. As so, lovely and beautiful as uh -huh. it is. Yeah. yeah. And so that is true. And I think the way that we do that is through that sense of understanding the batter. And then if you know that, then you can help put together a safety plan even after. You know, I think shelters provide enough time so the gift of shelter is, yes, that immediate safety. And then they have each other. You reduce isolation. You've got support groups. You've got interventions. You're giving people love who have not experienced genuine love and care from a very about you kind of perspective, right? We're, you know, So that's our job as advocates is to give love where nothing is needed back. It is just to be given kind of thing. And I think that's important for a lot of survivors to have. It can be very disrupting, too, depending on their the situation. You know, I think the real hazard is that we don't often, we're looking for this answer without any batter accountability. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, you were sending them to shelter as this quick fix and it has lots of benefits, but it is not undoing the batters or the batters behaviors. The gift of it might be the fact that at least we have a little opportunity if we can keep them safe for a short time to figure out what that batter might be doing and not doing. Right. Right. Are they stalking? Are they going after them? Are she, is that individual getting 100 texts a day? You know, are they cutting off their cell phone service? Are they able to access Facebook pages and other forms, you know, cyber stalking? All those things that we should be looking for as advocates should always be trying to figure out what those batters steps are and look like. And then help figure out what next. You know, some people may have to relocate for good because we just don't or can't find a way to put people back safely in their communities. I think the best option always for a survivor is to keep them out of shelter and safe in their communities when possible. That's the best option for the yeah. kids, for her, you know, for the community, for everything they're already engaged in. If we have good community accountability and we can kind of gauge and monitor the batter and the batter's behavior and wrap them in a safety plan, can't always be done. But shelters are not the answer for everybody and nor are protective orders for everybody or the legal justice system. Every survivor has its own, you know, they have their own story and every batter has, uses tactics based on that survivors. You know, batters change their tactics depending on who they're with. They don't quit battering. They just batter somebody just new, but they might change those tactics depending on that next partner and the vulnerabilities and the strengths and weaknesses of the next partner. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's incredibly important as advocates that we understand battering. Nice. Thank you. I'm so glad that you brought up the just giving time sometimes to love on people. I don't think we talk about that as enough and I'm really not delving into it at this moment either. But there's something hokey about it, I guess, or people don't feel that that's, I don't know, the, the professional thing to do. But I really do think showing gratitude, showing love, showing care is so much of what you know, our families really need. And I think we sometimes feel we're overstepping or that's not our role or, or I'm, my boundaries are a little off and that's not what I'm supposed to do. So I really encourage folks that are listening into this to really reevaluate that concept and re 
question is requestion a word because if you're not showing love to our families then you might not be doing this work fully well, if you don't have love for them then i think we need to think about is this the work for us on some level and i don't mean that as a negative way to challenge systems i do think sometimes we're trained in a different way you know around boundaries and things and boundaries are extremely important in this work as well but honestly i mean the vulnerability of survivors who find their way through our doors require in my opinion that the person on the other side of that door genuinely care to the their bones about what happens to that survivor and that they are a part of that system that they are a part of that journey with them not as the helper or the fixer but as an equal party willing to kind of join hands or join forces as a survivor navigates it. Now, survivors don't always welcome all of that with open arms. They don't trust it. They've got a whole host of reasons why it may take time. But I think the best compliment, I think what has driven me over all these years of doing the work is always come down to, I, I love our survivors. I just, every one of them, in every bit of messiness and strength and beauty, and oh, frustration they can be sometimes, but a genuine love is what I think is, if you carry that, then you'll be around for a long time, I think. And I think that's what every survivor deserves on the other side of that door. So talking about coming in that door and walking in that door, let's talk a little bit about programs and shelter programs. And let's talk a little bit about rules and shelter because <laughs> it's your favorite topic. But it's that same concept, right? It's like, the goal isn't to manage people, right? The goal isn't to, you know, I don't know, create a structure that is power over on folks, but that you're inviting them into a home or a house or a space that is loving and caring and can adapt to and respond to their messiness, which we should expect as a person in trauma, right? That's right. And we should be there to respond to the needs of their children as they're experiencing their trauma and moving and shifting and mom's in a space, right? So how do we kind of embrace all that? And I don't quite know if we could do that with a lot of strict rules. So I do know this is one of your favorite subjects. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the no rule philosophy, but yet still give us the idea that you can still have structure in your programming? Yeah, the no rules are for the residents, not the staff, <laughs> A. So that means you can have a no rules program, but have a, tons of structure for survivors and for the staff in order to be able to implement programming. You can have both. And I think it can get lost. People think it's one way or the other. And I think what happens is, is every time something bad happens or challenges us or we're fearful might happen again, something may happen again, we start to create rules in order to mitigate future incidences. And the problem is it never does. And I think it takes time. I think a new employee, so folks listening to the podcast are fairly new to this work. And so there's going to be a sense of, I need rules. If you just tell me what to do, you know, I just had this the other day with one of the staff, just, would you just tell me what to do? And I go, it's not that simple. You're working with a human being. I wasn't there. You tell me what you think needs to be done. We'll look at answers. And it's like, ugh, they roll their eyes at me and grunt. Like, there she goes again, won't tell you anything, you know, indecisive. 
And it's not I'm being smiling indecisive. smiling at you because I can envision this whole conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't there, but I, I'm with you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've probably done it to you many times yeah. as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, because it's not that simple and there are many avenues with human beings, not just a clear cut answer. And so I think though, when we're young in this work, we really, really want that answer of how to do the work because we need to feel competent. And so I need to always keep going back and going, this isn't about you. Your competency will come. It's going to take time. This is about them. This is about service to others. Therefore, it is a learning curve. It is a process. Nobody fits into a box. We will not be a cookie cutter program. Everybody is unique and different in that approach. And as challenging as that is, I promise you, one day, if I try to put structure in, I guarantee you, for the most part, if I, you know, to a meeting and said, well, you know what? From now on, everybody will have to be in their room at nine o'clock. I would have the majority of our staff would go, what? We're not treating people like children. Are you kidding me? Oh, you know, like they would be furious with me because those that do the work long enough begin to realize that rules actually hurt your ability to help others. That's interesting. Dig into that. Well, I mean, they just they hinder your creativity. They hinder the individualism that comes with survivors. It hinders your ability to, you know, navigate each individual story and situation because you're having to treat everybody the same. And you will never do so. You will never do so. I mean, programs in in the past, I've been a part of programs that had much more or many more rules, you might say, expectations. So what that created was this dynamic of the good advocate and the bad advocate, which was terrible. Like, why would we do that? To each other. So the good advocate were the ones that broke the rules all the time. I was probably one of those good advocates. I wasn't that I was that great. It's just the residents figured out who to come to when they needed a rule broke. Right? That didn't mean I was better than the people. The other people, gosh, love them, were doing what was expected. They were kind of following the rules, the rules set forth by that organization. But yet they would get labeled bad, you know? And really, I was just manipulated and they couldn't be. And we were following rules that shouldn't have been in place anyway. And then we're all sitting around wondering why we had to exit somebody from shelter because their kid ate cookies in a bedroom. Right. Because it was their third time that food was in the bedroom. And you're going, really? We're going to put somebody, where's the success in that? And where were we for her? And what have we missed and done? So rules really stifle your ability to serve others. Now, now to get back to structure, that does not mean you don't have structure. You can have structure in your facility. You can have, you know, nine o'clock, get up and go morning, you know, sessions for people. And, you know, you can have expectations that, you know, people are moving around and up and about and, and things like that. It just means the rules say that if you worked all night long, then you're probably not one that needs to be up at nine because you didn't get off till seven in the morning. It just means you get to meet the individual where they are instead of the individual having to meet the program. That's really what it means. Yeah. And it really, I think, also sort of sets different expectations, right? So if you have no rules and you have no, well, not rules, if you have no structure and you have no expectation that people are going to do things, I don't know that that sets a very positive message either, right? And so we have expectation that you're going to come to so many groups and we have expectation that you're going to do this and take care of your room and take care of your kids and work your goal plan that you've self-defined. And if you're not, then we can revisit what seems to be the obstacle. But you're right. When you have when you have a lot of rules, you're either spending all your time figuring out how to break the rules or you're enforcing rules that are making matters worse. Well, exactly. And then you're forcing people to lie to you and just not be truthful right? ever, you know, because 
why all I need to do then, I'm just going to stay here until I get an apartment and I'm just going to do what I have to do to get through. And then we've missed such a beautiful opportunity to have been in you know, service to others and to have created an environment where people could go back and go, that was an important place for me to be. You know, I just talked to a young woman. I'm telling you, when she was in shelter, she was difficult. <laughs> she was not easy at all. Ugh, questioned everything, mad all the time, you know, felt like we were controlling and we're not controlling at all. You know, we don't have bedtimes and we don't have times you have to be in or any of those things, but it was her issue. She was young. And so um, she called, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. I said, how are you doing? I'm so glad you called. Like, I haven't heard from you for a while. And I said, uh, and she said, I'm doing great. I've got a job. Would you do this? Would you help me? And I thought, I'm so glad you called because I wasn't really sure how you felt about your experience when you were here. <laughs> and she got really tickled. She said, I was a total pain in the butt, whatnot. And I said, oh my gosh, yes, you were. Beautiful. So capable. But yes. And she goes, going to Greenhouse 17 was the best decision of my life. It's hard though, right? It's hard. it's hard. And she said it was hard. She said the worst part of it is the other resonance sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and then there's these comparisons. They got this. And so the expectation for, you know, a no rules program would be that you immediately always inform people of the who that you are as an organization and how people will be treated. Everybody will not be treated the same because the same is not equitable. Equality is not identical right? It's individualized. Everybody has unique set of circumstances uh, around their situation. And so when residents begin to understand that it's not how it's going to be, that doesn't mean they don't ever complain. You know, somebody got toothpaste and nobody offered me toothpaste when I came in and you go, well, let me take care of that. I'll get you some toothpaste. And sometimes you can, you know, appease people. And then sometimes you just got to make those decisions, you know, and the ability to explain to people that everybody's different. Yeah. What your family needs is not what that family needs. And I can't discuss that other family, but I hope you'll trust that we are trying to meet everybody's needs the best we can with you, our participant in that, you know, like you're a part of this process. I'm glad you brought up the fairness piece because I think that does come up often with new mm -hmm. people. It's much easier to go Everybody gets this. We have this many cubits of something and everybody gets this amount of those things. And that isn't always what people's needed. Some people need more. Some people need less. Some people are at a different place in their journey and their process. So it's not always the same. I will say, though, it's always good to sort of check your judgment and bias, though. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a time where if you have a few folks saying this doesn't seem fair, this doesn't seem right. Don't immediately get on the defense because maybe our presumption of what people need is a little off skew or we might reward the good family, right? The so-called good, easy to please, easygoing. We might do that or people that we connect with. We try to say we treat everybody the same who's receiving services, but we always sometimes have our favorites or people that we connect with. So I always sort of encourage folks that are listening in. Make sure you're always bouncing those ideas off your other staff. Be really open to self-reflect. Look in the mirror, as you often say, to make sure that some of that is coming from genuine fairness and equity versus I might have a little favor and I might be doing a little something over here for this crew. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, we just have well, to be we're thoughtful. human in this work, too, Absolutely. which is why I'll you have a team around it. you. And that's why you should have case conferences. And that's why you should kind of, you know, keep track of what we're doing or not doing. 
and communicate the best we can. It's, you know, communication is always an issue in a domestic violence program, probably anywhere. I don't know that I've ever worked or been anywhere that communication wasn't brought up as an issue somewhere down the road. And when you're serving human beings, that service has a tendency to take over sometimes some of that communication and things fall through the cracks. So some of it's given yourself grace and given other graces. It's also holding each other accountable as a team, as a, you know, as employees, you know, advocates. That's really important that you create relationships where you can have those discussions. So uh, as you would call them, a tree of trust, right? right? Where we can have these really important discussions and challenge each other and call each other out in a loving way, just like we would do our residents, right? Right. We have to be able to do that for each other. And I think most of the time survivors feel very loved and cared for and realize that nothing is going to be the same. And we are human and we will make mistakes and we will own them when we do. And, you know, it's okay to say you're sorry, even if you you never even did anything wrong. It's I say I'm sorry all the time to people that I didn't even do anything. And it's not about me being sorry. I am sorry that whatever happened, whoever did it, whoever didn't do it, whatever that looks like, it is, but it affected you. It impacted you in such a way that it felt like harm to you. Therefore, I am sorry. I'm sorry doesn't mean I'm wrong. I'm sorry means I care and I care about your feelings and I'm validating your feelings and your right to kind of be in that space at the moment. And then what can we do to help move beyond that? Man, those are beautiful, healthy, coping, loving skills that survivors are really going to need when they leave. And what a fabulous thing. And what a fabulous thing that a person feels comfortable enough to say, you've hurt my feelings or I'm mad at you or you did whatever. So don't shut it down. Don't say that what they heard was wrong and that you don't have anything to be sorry about. As you said, take those moments and it really can be a, a strength moving forward. It could be a good coaching, mentoring, and and relationship building time. And it takes time to get there. So I yeah. I, I, need, I need new advocates to know it can feel very personal. Yeah. It can. And sometimes the attacks look a little personal, right? (laughs) You know, it could be, I'm mad at you or you didn't do, you know, like to blame. And your first gut instinct is to be self-protective and a little self-defensive. I encourage that you just breathe and just let people feel their feelings are feelings. They're not always right or wrong. They're just feelings. And when we give people the space to have them, even if they're about us, and even if we know it may not be 100% 100% accurate or not. When we can give that space, that's what we really call de-escalation too. You know, programs that do that the best don't engage. They allow the space. They're not trying to fix it. They're not trying to defend it because that just escalates people's feelings. So if you can just validate their right to their feelings and then once it's calm, then you start to process what we could do better or what maybe we could have done differently or that we have done these things and, and that we're not likely to change that. But I'm really grateful that you have enough voice that you trusted us to tell us how you feel. That's perfect. One of the feelings that I think that advocates often have, and again, newer in the field, but I think we still have it, can be a sense of frustration. You know, we might have worked. It's not our work, but I'm just going to use this language. We might have worked really hard. We've set up you know, a treatment facility for someone to go to or new housing for someone to go to or whatever, sobriety, whatever's going on. And then all of a sudden, the victim survivor changes mind and either doesn't take the path that we think 
is the best path to go to, right? This happened the right. other day. I was at Case Review and it's like, oh, did all this work? And I really do think it was genuinely coming out of worry. I think there was a genuine worry about the decision that was made. But there was a tinge of, I spent two days trying to find all this stuff. And so, do you have any words of wisdoms or advice about frustration and outcomes and letting go, I think, a little bit of, of the outcomes? Well, that's the perfect language right there is letting go of the outcomes. Because my gut reaction to your story was it was two days given to somebody who's probably never had two good days given to them, that they were worthy enough that you spent enough time to try to create a new avenue. Even if I changed my mind, you loved and cared for me enough to try to create a different choice and avenue. I may not be ready for it. Maybe I thought I was, but I'm not now. And I do think that's part of the frustration is when it doesn't frustrate me when you do it. Or sometimes you just go, oh my gosh, we just did all this. But you also know in your heart of hearts that, that that's okay. It's not about me. It's about them. And okay. then It definitely had an impact. We didn't do harm by trying to make somebody's life better. That's A. But I think getting caught into the outcome, when you somehow believe that it's your skill set that makes a survivor successful or not, depending on how you would define that maybe, but it's really probably going to tend to lean you towards not being in this work very long, right? Because we, we're not a part of the outcome. We're part of the journey, but we don't get to be the outcome. It's not our skill set. It's their lives. It's their choices, not ours. All we can do is give what we have while we have it and have influence with it. Beyond that, it's not about us. <laughs> and that's what I go back to. If you, you just got to let go of the outcome. I like, I never really thought about it this way, but we can be really hard on ourselves sometimes as mm -hmm. advocates too. And I do think as you're doing this and you're working with survivors, you sometimes begin to reframe or re reframe maybe their narrative. You know, you have a lot of survivors come in the door and they're feeling very guilty about steps they've done. They feel they've wasted five years of their life with this person. They haven't been a very good parent. They, all these things. And so we begin to reframe their story to show the resiliency and strength. So I really loved when you just did that and you said, why would you look at those two days as wasted two days that you did all this work when really you spent two days and you showed love and compassion for this person and you fought for that person? And why, you believed in them. Why is that a wasted day? It's not a waste. I really like that. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. It's a beautiful and day. I, I need, the longer you do the work, I, I want advocates to know you're not always going to know how people's lives turn out or don't. You just don't. But I will promise you, you will get enough glimpse to begin to realize the small things that made the gravest difference for survivors. It wasn't getting the house. It was the fact that you spent two days trying to get the things for the house. That not getting the house wasn't important. It is the fact that you stopped and listened. It is the fact that you didn't pass by when you could tell on their face that they were not in the best of spaces at that moment, that you just didn't meet and greet and move on so you didn't have to stop and deal with it. It is in the little things that have the longest term impact of feeling love. And you can't feel love. I mean, to truly feel love, you have to be worthy. You have to know that you're worthy of love. And I think that's the beauty of shelters. It's this opportunity to help survivors be in a space where they begin to learn that they're worthy of love without strings. So don't hang on to that disappointment when no. it goes a different route. Oh it's God. not about the outcome. 
you know, and even though we're talking a lot about shelter and you just said shelter, this can play out a lot in our court or community advocates too, right? How many times do we work with someone? We're going to get a DVO, no contact order, and we're going to do this. And then you go to court and they go, you know what? I think I have to drop this protective order. So... But you were there. Yeah, with you're going to drop the protective order or they go home or they break yeah. the v- protective order, right? And you know they broke the protective order and you're trying to help them understand what will happen if the police see you over there and you need to, you know. So the same thing is we kind of get vested into their outcome and their choices. We are kind of the mouthpiece as advocates. We are the informers to survivors. We are the ones that walk that journey with them, but not for them. So it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's shelter or outreach or courts or community. We have to know where we end and they begin. So you had started in the very beginning and you said you were giving grace to new advocates a little bit, really just showing up, being a little nosy, being caring, being loving. Sometimes that's enough. You're on this evolution of growth, but it takes about three years, Mm -hmm. right, to get some competency, some pretty grounded competency in this work. And so as we just sort of close this up and we start beginning to define as advocates, the who, you know, that capital W, who that we want to be in the work and that evolution of those three years, any, what does that process look like? Why do you, I don't mean a big long piece, but I guess like, what does that three years look like? And what should we really be digging into at this time as we're starting out in this field? Oh, and you don't want a long answer. Okay. So (laughs) I would say... Well, there's a couple of things that's come up for me. That first three years is really about being humble and allowing the survivors to be your teachers and your colleagues to kind of be the steering wheel a little bit of the boat, let's say. But who's really going to teach you the survivors? But you need your colleagues just to bounce things off of and help make sure you're in the right path. So that your first year should just be a lot of humility, humbleness, asking questions, engaging, figuring out, and getting comfortable in the not knowing and just learning, right? You know, by the time to say, and everybody's a little different, but, you know, let's say second year for me just really is where people are, are starting to know how to start to navigate systems and things and feel a lot more comfortable and confident in their work. And it's really that third year, I think, that the light comes on and you go, oh, I get this. And then you really come to terms with, the who that you are in this work and that it's not about me and you're comfortable in that. And for those that can get there, you know, I think you'll see a lot of longevity. I do think, and you know, I speak of this at different times. I do think we have thresholds in this work and I want to, I use threshold. A lot of people use language like burnout and I like the language threshold It's much more positive. It just means you've met your capacity to do this work with empathy and love for others in this setting. You know, there might be other settings that you're ready for or want to try, but I do think that we kind of reach these thresholds by which is our limit of being able to do it. Like we've seen amazing advocates for nine years hit their threshold, you know, and then stay three years too long after that. And you're going, oh, they're lovely, amazing advocates, but they just kind of hit that wall, that threshold that their body, their psyche, their emotional ability um, kind of hit that wall of where they can go in this particular field. And then we need to be okay to move on from that. We did our service for nine years. You don't have to do it 30 some years. 
to have been an incredible part of this journey and this work. So I want advocates to know that too. Give yourself at least three years of grace and knowing that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Own your mistakes. Tell survivors, you know, you should tell every survivor, I'm new at this. I'm going to be new at this for the next three years. I'm going to miss things, make mistakes. I'm sorry. But I'm going to love you. I love you. Yes, I'm going to love you. And maybe that's all you're going to get from me because I'm still learning all this other stuff. Right. But that genuineness, that authenticity is exactly what survivors are looking for because they don't have that in other parts of their world. It's all been, you know, gaslighting and manipulation and lies. And so to just have somebody sit and go be real with them about the who that they are that they bring, I think has incredible power and impact for survivors as well. And then to know that, you know, it just takes time and then eventually, you know, just keep tabs on yourself with others on that threshold issue and invite yourself to move forward or continue to stay engaged for as long as, you know, your threshold allows. I haven't quite hit mine yet, so... I'm still here, but I know amazing people who hit theirs in three years or five years. But one of the things you often do is invite feedback, right? You'll say that to me all the time, Diane, if I do this, you know, you need to tell me or, you know, like you always invite feedback. So newer folks in this field, invite feedback. Don't get defensive about it. You know, give feedback in a way that can be, you know, a learning moment. It can be a teaching moment. It's not done to be critical, but it's done to uplift other people's work. Well, we take great pride in this work, I think, or I do. I feel great pride of not a boastful pride, but just a pride that that survivors have allowed me this opportunity to have set alongside their journey with them for a really long time. So this inviting feedback is really For me, I mean, it sounds great that I'm really open and I want feedback, and I do. On the other hand, I don't want to do harm. My bigger fear and the reason I want feedback is I don't want to be that leader or that person or that advocate who stayed too long, who did harm, who couldn't be present for others in the way that they deserved because I had met my threshold. And sometimes it's hard to see if you're there. So you've got to have trusted folks around you to go, I need you, if you see me slipping and not doing things or, you know, avoiding my work or whatever that may look like, and you can sense it, your colleagues will sense it before you will sometimes. So the feedback is, for me, is out of fear of doing harm. And there is a distinction. We were talking about this the other day in my office, even of like, how do you know when you just need a little bit of a break, you just need a little bit of a respite. But if you're going on a vacation, you're taking time off and you come right back into it and you've met your your burnout threshold already, you might have a, uh-oh, right? Like then you right, might right. need to- Like if you're it. having a month off because you can't stand to walk in the building That's for the last six months, that is not a vacation. Yeah. And you are not going to be better after a month. Yeah. You're going to walk in that first Monday after a month and be exhausted all over again. Yes. If you're going on vacation because you got plans and you want to have fun, and needing a little break is not a big deal. You know, everybody needs a day or two here and there. But when you find yourself going to work and going to work and now you can't wait, and I may need some time to really rejuvenate. You probably are really at that threshold. I, I know very few people who come back from that. They try because they think that's what they're supposed to be doing. And, and so I'm not going to be here to judge anybody walking through that because it's, it's a hard journey itself. But I, I do think be cognizant, be cognizant of the where that you are. If, if you need a month off because you're exhausted, you're going to be exhausted that yeah. as soon as you come back. I do. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing work. It's powerful work. It's, it's humbling work, I think was 
was your phrase earlier of just being humble in it. Ask lots of questions, build a team around you that you can trust, that you can bounce ideas off, call each other out. We have a responsibility to the men and women that we serve to always do better, to learn and to grow in it. So always encourage folks to do that. So I think I'm about ready to wrap up unless you have any little last minute. I know we could talk about this for forever and ever and ever, but probably no yeah, I just okay. you know grateful for the opportunity and I know that there are a lot of people been around for a while that are here to help you're not in this alone it takes time all the advice that you would give a survivor please take for yourself thank you Darlene so you've been listening to Darlene Thomas executive director of Greenhouse 17 and this is KCADV certification series and you've been listening to Joel 1 expectations and challenges of advocacy